It's a Friday afternoon, which means that on the days when we get lucky, it is time for Plan B with Rebecca Davis. Hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm looking forward to six o'clock with a deep, <laughs> deep, deep look forward longing. Excellent. How are you? I'm good, thank you, John. It's been an interesting week. It has. Isn't it always, though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I haven't done it for a while now, but for a long time, I did a regular crossing to News Talk 1ZB, which is the the main uh, news uh, news and information radio station in Auckland in New Zealand mm. and I would have to do for them a serious story from South Africa and a, a funny story, light-hearted, quirky story from South Africa and they'd put me on hold and I'd listen to callers on New Zealand live radio station bitching about this and bitching about that <laughs> <laughs> and I thought one day I want to be as boring as this please one day I want to talk about topics as boring as the fact that the chips in Kilmartin's just gone up by 22% we can't handle that, it's completely and utterly unacceptable what's happening in this country <laughs> that is a very good impersonation <laughs> well, I, I listened to a lot of them while I was waiting to go on and tell them about South Africa so your view quickly on the cartoon before we move on John, I thought the cartoon was problematic. Um, I think that the ANC's response to it has been possibly overblown given the number of other exceptionally serious issues confronting the country. And this goes also for their response to the sex shop opposite Parliament. It really seems to have been a week when they were getting their hands dirty with relatively trifling issues considering some of the big big picture issues. But I did think the cartoon was troubling and I'm glad it got removed. That's pretty much my view. Okay. I'm, I'm surprised that you wanted to talk about e-cigarettes. It's, it's something that I, I'm intrigued by because I, I go into a restaurant and somebody a table away from me starts vaping. Mm. And my, my first instinct is to look for somebody to complain to. Mm. And then I realize that I can see the smoke. I can see the action of smoking. But that smell, which is part of... Well, which is the main reason there's also the possible health detriment to me. But it's the smell. That's the main reason I don't want somebody smoking at me when smoking next to me when I'm eating. That it's not there. And I sort of go, okay, well, I'd better not complain then. Mm. But it's uh, – there was uh, um, 50-odd experts have written to the World Health Organization chief Margaret Chan to say that e-cigarettes could be amongst the most significant health innovations of the 21st century, perhaps saving hundreds of millions of lives. So don't, as – the WHO thinks about how to classify e-cigarettes, don't classify mm-hmm. them the same as normal cigarettes because you'll kill people. That's interesting, John. There was a useful... Sorry, I suppose we should say that the reason we're discussing this, I don't know if you mentioned this, is that the city of Cape Town is considering um, reviewing the, the, the legislation around e-cigarettes because the way it currently stands, they, the, the current tobacco legislation can't apply to e-cigarettes because they don't contain tobacco they only contain vaporized nicotine Mm. but they're looking at whether they should in fact the national department of health is looking at whether they should review this to include to include e-cigarettes it's a tough one because i think um there is a fair amount of evidence to suggest that it is much better for people than smoking the long the the, the troubling part is of course the long-term risks which we've yet to see and i'm interested to hear that such an sort of positive um a positive review of them from those health experts you mentioned john the lancet the the renowned medical journal had a very useful recent editorial actually rehashing some of the arguments for and against and the problem as as with so many of these things is just the nature of uncertainty both the long-term damage and the fact that um we still haven't had time really to to look at the second-hand exposure impact over over time as well i mean this thing has just blown up john in the last 
two years, between 2012 and 2014, the amount of e-cigarettes in the UK has tripled to 2.1 million users, which is huge. And I don't know about what the stats are like for South Africa, but you're right. Everywhere you go in Cape Town now, you see people people vape, vaping, as, as, as some people yeah. call it. So it's troubling to know how to deal with it. But I think it's an interesting one because a lot of people's discomfort with it, as you yourself say, is the aesthetics of it, that it mm. looks like smoking. And as you say, there's that kind of dissonance where you realize but it's not smoking as such. So there's a sort of, I think there's a, a, a moralism to it which is based more on optics than anything else. So there are 7 million people in Europe that are using e-cigarettes at the moment. And one of these um experts, epidemiologists, oncologists, addiction experts, health policy specialists who, who wrote this letter says that people smoke for the nicotine and die of the tar. If you mm. separate the nicotine from the burning of vegetable matter, people can still use nicotine, but they're not going to die from smoking. E-cigarettes have very, very fractional levels of toxins compared to conventional ones. But the worry there seems to be the primary worry of, of saying it's fine, go ahead and do it, is that you re-glamorize smoking. You make it easier to start. And yes, there does seem to be preliminary evidence that quitting via vaping first leads to a more successful and more sustained quitting of smoking. But is there perhaps a contraflow as well? Starting vaping, there's not much of a kick. Let me get a real kick. Move on to cigarettes. You know, what's the impact of that? I certainly, I mean, I know a lot of people who, who use e-cigarettes and I've never heard of anyone starting to be introduced to nicotine via e-cigarettes. So I don't doubt that it's possible. I think the more troubling thing is, do people who use e-cigarettes actually go on to quit altogether because you are constantly flushing your body with nicotine and the one thing is that you can use it in, currently in places where you can't smoke so actually i know a no, number of people who went from being very moderate real cigarette smokers to constantly puffing away on oh, e-cigarettes really? because you are allowed to use them all the time so from that perspective possibly the addiction is is actually deepening but then we also are faced with the question is is it intrinsically bad to be addicted to nicotine if you're not getting any of the other I mean, a lot of people are addicted to caffeine, for instance, which is also a, a stimulant, and people don't seem to have too much of a problem with that. So I don't know what the intrinsic health um, detriments of nicotine are, but I think that's also one of the things we, ha we just have to look at. Mm. Would, you, would you like them to be banned? I mean, how I, problematic do you find it in a public space if somebody a metre and a half away from you is vaping? No, not remotely. I mean, no. as you say, there's no smell. Mm. Um, it, it just does give you that, that little scrick. But then again, John, a couple of years ago, I actually saw a woman who I th must assume was a tourist, possibly of Eastern European origin, though I hate to indulge in these kind of stereotypes, who was walking through the waterfront, through that area where Melissa's is, that passageway, brazenly smoking a real cigarette, which I was quite amazed by. I, I couldn't believe she'd got, she'd got that far. Um, but seeing vaping in, in public certainly does, it doesn't offend me in the slightest. There's been quite a lot of coverage. I mean, Fridays, Fridays are when most print outlets spend more time talking about the arts than they would on Monday, Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. So I suppose it's not surprising that there's been more coverage today of the new Minister of Arts and Culture mm. than there has been. And perhaps also there were some more eyebrow-raising cabinet appointments made, announced last Sunday, which have taken our attention away from Nati Tetwa as the Minister of Arts and Culture. Mm. And when I heard that on Saturday, Sunday evening at about 7 o'clock, my <laughs> heart sank. That's quite a response, John. It really did. I mean... It's a Cinderella ministry, and it shouldn't be. Mm. It needs an engaged cultural activist to be in there, to be arguing for funds, to be arguing for promotion of art mm. generally and artists specifically. And what do we get? We get a conventional, conservative, art-ignorant bureaucrat.
Well, the question is, John, who would have been better suited within the current crop to fill that position? And some people suggested actually that the former minister in the presidency, Collins Chabanet, might have been a better pick because he apparently at least is in a band. So he would have some <laughs> well, appreciation yeah, no, Hold on music. a second, hold on a second. Natium Tetwa says that he always leads the revolutionary songs <laughs> at ANC gatherings. So that makes him just as appropriate. That 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 is something. John, I must say my response is similar and... Zapiro, you just had on, just has the most powerful cartoon, I think, today. Which My Angelou, yeah. Feature, oh, no, no, no about Natim Tetwa. Well, I didn't see that one. It might have been yesterday, featuring Natim Tetwa in an artist's smock, and he's produced these three sort of Jackson Oh, yes, with uh, Mido Machia and yeah, the, the three great yes. policing horrors of his, re- of his reign. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think there's something that feels instinctively kind of icky about a man who has helmed the police over a period of this brutality and horror to go on to lead arts and culture. There just seems something so intuitively wrong about that, apart from anything else. I mean, just looking at what arts and culture are supposed to bring to us in in some way. But um, I interviewed the, the new minister yesterday. I was very curious to hear. I mean, obviously, he hasn't had a lot of time to get to grips with his role. Understandably, you just get announced. And as you say, we know he doesn't have any experience in this role. So it's not like he's been he's had a lot of time to get to grips with it. But um I asked him, for instance, if he would support the right of a private gallery to show the spear, the painting that caused South Africa's biggest controversy in years artistically. And he responded, what is the spear? Which didn't bode... In a way that <laughs> made you believe that he was genuinely ignorant I think of... that he, he possibly was just confused about the title because when I explained what I meant, he was familiar with the, with the concept. But that didn't inspire confidence to me at all. And his eventual answer inspired even less confidence, which is that... He does not approve of any derogatory art and that he doesn't think he doesn't like art that um, doesn't sort of lead us along our journey. And it's that rhetoric that disturbs me, John, this notion that the arts and culture's primary um, role should be nation building. Because this is exactly what we heard from disastrous two ministers ago, Luke Nguana, who objected to Zanella Muholi's lesbian art photography on the basis that it did not contribute to nation building. I mean, is that really no, the role artists, of art? artists must shake the foundations of right. the nation. Right. Come on, they mustn't build the nation. That's the job of the priests and the teachers and the fathers and the mothers and the whatevers, you know? And propagandists, you know, yeah. to put it to put it frankly. He, he, it seemed to me that his current interest in that role seemed to be very much about nation building in a heritage perspective. So he spoke very passionately and fluently about his plans, for instance, for a hero's acre to memorialize liberation heroes. He compared it to similar monuments, Arc de Triomphe in Paris and so on. And that to me seemed to be the area in which his initial passions at least will go into so that kind of public memorializing and that definitely does have a place and and, uh, probably was in your piece on daily maverick that he said if you look at the way the boer war is memorialized it's Mm. largely memorialized from the perspective of the boers and the to a lesser degree from the perspective of the brits but what about all the black people who suffered in that conflict where are their stories and that's perfectly reasonable tell those stories absolutely but i think it's I mean, it's a, a fraction of the total role of the arts and culture ministry. And just some of the, the his discourse alarmed me a little, talking about how the role of his department was to lead a nation to its identity, for instance. And again, that word lead kind of sits oddly with me because it suggests a kind of top-down imposition of an idea of national identity, which seems, again, very much at odds with the idea of creative individual artists producing, you know, deeply felt work. 
Mm. But he's there. He is there. And look, we have, I mean, part of, part of what makes a good minister in any department is simply, you know, administration and management. As some people have said, he's used to running a very busy portfolio, the police department, the police ministry, and he's used to having to respond very quickly to a number of emergencies. So at least he should be sort of on his feet. But the other point has been made that if you were to appoint a minister for economics or finance, for instance, who had absolutely no background in that sector, the result, the, the, I mean, there would be an outcry. Yet somehow it's considered fine to appoint not only a minister, but a deputy minister and a director general, Sibusi Sokaba, in arts and culture, none of whom have any background in the arts sector. And that's also alarming because you'd think if you're not getting that kind of input from your immediate team, then, then you're going to have to do a hell of a lot of consultation. Um, uh, sorry if I seemed a bit distracted, but I, I remembered a very good piece by Musheshwa Manare, the deputy editor of the Mail and Guardian in today, is saying that um, civil servants, DGs and deputy DGs are more important than mm. ministers and that's an area where we've signally failed as a country to, is to build that effective, stable, consistent set of public administration experts. And there was a statistic in there that I just wanted to check. Uh, Jacob Zuma appointed 65 men and women to minister or deputy minister posts in 2009. Mm. Ten of those are in the same post still. Right. I mean, that's that, that, That's the indication of the chair swapping. And, you know, that, that lack of continuity can't be good for any department. When the new brooms come in, they generally bring with them a whole flood of their new people. And the, the result is... You know, it's very sort of stum uh, halting for these departments to every four years or even sooner because they shuffle uh, more regularly than that to have to go through the c complete influx of new blood, new ideas. It's um, mm. discombobulating. What about protest art theatre during apartheid, says an SMS? That was certainly not seen as nation building by the government in power at the time, and it served a great purpose. It, indeed. I mean, art, part of art, I, I don't think that one should rigidly define art as saying all art must challenge the mm -hmm. status quo but there must be space created for some art at least to challenge and challenge vigorously and challenge in a revolutionary unpleasant discomforting way the status quo. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. It also unnerved me that when I asked uh, Minister Mtetwa to name his favourite South African visual artist, painter or sculptor, he declined to do so and I'd like to think that is because he has too many to pick just one, John. <laughs> <laughs> One suspects not. But he does like African music. It stills his soul. It enhances his soul. Oh, it enhances, <laughs> which is even more impressive than stilling one's soul. And I know you've been itching to have a go at Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng, so let me give you a platform. <laughs> John, um, you're referring there to the speech Mokhweng gave on, when was it, Tuesday night? Tuesday night, Stellenbosch, yep. Stellenbosch on religion and law. I had a feeling that he was going to say something interesting there because we, his views on religion and law are, of course, well known. I attended his JSC interview in 2011 where he made no secret of his belief that religion and law should be intertwined. And um, the speech he's given, which a lot of commentary has already been produced on that I'm sure your listeners will be aware of, but it, it did strike me as, as disturbing. And there are those who have said that, that, that that's an uncharitable reading. But he says... In, I mean, blatantly, in as many words, that religion should be allowed to influence the Constitution, that religion can make our laws better, and that we should start with the Constitution. And, I mean, the first question that begs, John, is what parts of religion does he feel are not incorporated in the spirit of the Constitution? I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to find an answer to that, and the only one I can find is morality, sexual morality, that he feels is not adequately legislated against, and that 
is a frightening thought, I think. Because all the other stuff, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, all of those commandments are incorporated into the Constitution. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. All of that's in the Constitution. Absolutely right. And actually, another thing he says that worried me in that regard, because he said about murder, for instance, it is not enough to merely prohibit killing. Measures must be in place to create an environment that is hostile towards murder. Now, he may be talking there towards a general social disapproval of murder, but I think that exists. And what I suspect is that he might be pointing towards um, capital punishment there if he says that it is not enough to merely prohibit killing. What does he mean there, John? Does he mean harsher sentences? I also don't know. But, I mean, I I, I don't think it's correct to say that we... We don't frown upon murder, so it's it's interesting to think about what he could mean there. I found it odd that he suggested that if uh, men and women were not sleeping with each other's partners, we'd have fewer murders in this country. I thought, really? He, it's he, as simple as that, is it? Stop adultery and you stop murder in a country with the divides that South Africa has. Interesting. And the, the notion of criminalizing adultery, I mean, has been rejected by practically every enlightened state. In fact, virtually the only countries that criminalize adultery, as he suggests, are ultra-conservative Islamic states. And, you know, historically, laws against adultery were always only there to prevent women from sleeping with anyone other than their spouses, not men. And that's also why criminalizing adultery is generally taken to be, um, you know, a contravention of the rights of women above all else, because that is whose sexual behavior it is intended to control. As always, Rebecca, thought-provoking stuff. Thank you very, very much indeed. There will be another Plan B next week. Thanks, John.